Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, no one plans to get sick, and yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and somehow I'm still here. I also survived our stupid broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together. Because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. All right, friends, welcome back. We got a great guest on the show today, one for the books. Carl Eric Fisher is an author and an addiction physician. Those are not words I've ever used in succession, but hear me out. He's an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University, where he works with the Division of Law, Ethics, and Psychiatry. Again, words I've never really spoken in succession. He also maintains a private psychiatric practice focusing on the complementary and integrative approaches to treating addiction. He's the author of a great new book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction, which is now out on Penguin Press, and he's the host of an amazing podcast, Flourishing After Addiction. And last but not least, he's a recovering high school marching band geek just like me. Need I say more? Carl Eric Fisher coming up right now. Carl, thank you so much for coming here on Out of Patience with us today. Thanks so much, Matt. It's a real pleasure and an honor. Thanks for having me on. So I'm here with my co-founder, Andrew McDowell at Offscript Health. We felt like it was just so important to bring both of our perspectives to the conversation to speak with you today about this. But my first question to you, channeling my inner band geek nerd, is why is trumpet superior to baritone horn, which is what I played? <laughs> well, if you have to ask, I think you already know. Uh, <laughs> well done. Well done. <laughs> we get the... <laughs> <laughs> We get all the good melodies, man. We get to march around. I love to go back to people's origin stories. And, you know, there's such an odd chemistry that we become from our band geek days. Did that inform anything in your life that you wound up being today? Is it is it surprising or unsurprising that that's kind of where life began for you in terms of is this awesome or is this awkward or both? And that's fine. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I don't think about it too much because it's so far in my past, honestly. But I uh, I think yes and no. There's obviously the sad part of being a nerd and being socially excluded and everything that comes along with that. But music was so integral to my life, too. I, I went on to study voice in college and continue to keep that up, classical vocal singing. And I try to sing in an opera once a year. You know, COVID is kind of torpedoed that. But performance and the kind of practice that comes along with performance um, really was really helpful to me in writing, come to think of it. Just the, the idea of like going alone into the practice room or going alone to the page and 
getting the reps in and having a sort of like process mindset, being willing to be in the, in the muck of it all. That's not a fully baked thought, but that, you know, it, it's an association my mind makes immediately. And your role in marching band and the place that it put you in, in the social order of your high school, wound up getting mentioned in your book when you tell the story of the first drink you ever had. Yeah, that's right. It was my tribe, really. And in my tribe, we played video games during junior prom. We didn't go to junior prom. But we also had this phenomenon where there's a social rite of passage in North Jersey suburbia, where I grew up, where regardless of how ostracized you were, you got to go to the cool kid's house, to the basement, and do keg stands and do funnels and be part of that like binge culture. And I loved it. It was definitely the intoxication, you know, it, it, that definitely took off the social anxiety. But it also was something about that shared ritual and the, the social role that alcohol played for us. And um, it was just magical. You know, it was magical. Yeah, my first drink, I remember Metallica's One was debuting on the Headbangers Ball. So we were invited to go over. It was a school night. No one cared. It was the 80s. Like, where are you going? I'm going out. It's great. See you later, Matt. And a bunch of us were there. But one of the kids brought like a 24 pack of some beer. And of course, I had my first beer and I threw up. And I'm kind of glad I did because I still hate beer. But can you talk more about what's the psychology of that first drink? Well, it's it's a complex phenomenon, the way people interact with substances. So I can tell you just about one dimension, which is my own, and what I do know about the psychology of it. Uh, there is this sort of cliche or myth that like the way that you react to the first drink tells you something about your trajectory. I don't think that's true for everyone based on seeing patients and based on my read of the literature. But I do think that there was something diagnostic about my own reaction to drinking. Because what it was pointing toward was it was pointing toward something deep and unsettled within me. There was something that preceded the drinking. It's not that like drinking took me over like some sort of invading toxin or pathogen or germ. It was it was doing something for me. People take drugs for reasons. And when I was taking that drug, alcohol, it, it really helped me with some of uh, some of these sort of like unsettledness and discomfort I felt in early life. Yeah. And that that scene in the basement, when I read it, Carl, resonated with my own experience as well. Um, my first drink was right around the same time that yours took place. And, uh, and it was a moment when all of a sudden there was a, a warm glow embracing the world and people who didn't seem interested in talking to me at other times were suddenly interested in doing so. It was welcoming and it, uh, ended catastrophically with me, uh, vomiting on my mom's car, uh, upon, uh, arriving home. And I've also encountered addiction in my own way. And so reading your book has been a, a really fascinating experience. I'd love to ask you about the decision that you made to adopt this sort of twinned structure to the book. It is both a personal narrative. You're telling your own story and your own experience 
of addiction, while at the same time going all the way back into historical texts to look at the way that humans have attempted to confront the challenge of addiction. And you sort of weave them back and forth together in a way that I think is highly successful. Uh, what led you to decide to tell this story in that way? One of the things that became really clear to me as I started looking into the history of addiction was how personal it was and how subject it was to bias and to social contingency in the sense of like what are what are the ideas and assumptions we bring in to the study. So at one level, you know, bringing in my story was a way to keep myself honest. It was a way of acknowledging that this is one person's history, it's one person's perspective. Um, but that also connects to just the bottom line reason why I wrote the book, which is I, I did it to help myself. I, I got interested in the history of addiction early in my own recovery because I felt like there would be something outside of medicine that could help me make sense of myself. And I thought that writing those two elements together would A, help me keep focused on what actually matters, help me keep focused on what would actually be interesting and useful to a reader, and just to keep the reader engaged and interested, just to remind myself in a way what the history is looking to do, how it's supposed to help. Because you know, I come from academia, and I haven't written a lot for the general public, so I had written a bunch of really like specific academic articles, and so I knew I needed to you know, give myself a little juice to <laughs> convince myself to make it translatable, to make sure that what I was saying actually mattered. Because that's a defense mechanism for me too, is to retreat into intellectualization and to uh, kind of like categorize all my nice little facts uh, rather than go to the emotional core of the story. Teeing off on what you just said, it's always surprising me that people think everything is a new idea. Addiction has been around for thousands of years. And why is it surprising to people to know that uh, we've been dealing with this since the dawn of civilization? Yeah, it's such a great point. And it, it's shocking how many times basic ideas about addiction have been lost and rediscovered or lost and like supposedly discovered without any acknowledgement of what came before. Even in the academic discussions, people tend to start the histories from around the early 20th century um, and miss the point that there were huge mutual aid groups just like AA, but totally independent of AA that arose during, you know, like the 1840s. There were these huge medical movements, these really interesting, like interdisciplinary, integrative, holistic medical movements that had, took this really broad idea of addiction. And then they were sort of like drowned out by in this case, actually stigma and racism, you know, the moral panics over black use and over Chinese use around the 19th century. So I'm totally with you. It's maddening. I don't have an answer for why we have this sort of built-in forgetter, but uh, it's shocking the kinds of patterns that recur over time, like you said, going back to ancient Greece, ancient India. Why is the word disease a bad word? And do we really have to challenge our interpretation of it as being something negative? Well, the first thing I want to say about that is that some people really get a lot of value out of the disease label. There are people in addiction recovery who see it as a source of strength and clarity, and I really want to respect that. You know, there are lots of paths to recovery. There are a lot of ways to make sense of addiction recovery, and I don't mean to knock that for anyone. But 
when I look back over the history and the way medical science has struggled to understand addiction since like the 1700s and earlier, I think the notion of disease does more harm than good, mainly because it's messy. People use it in a lot of different ways. And there's a compassionate broad way that people have used addiction. So Benjamin Rush is a great example of this. He's the main character in one of the chapters of my book. He's one of the founding fathers. He signed uh, the Declaration of Independence and was in a Continental Congress and uh, just a really interesting guy. He tried to call attention to the problem of habitual drunkenness in the early, early United States by saying it was a disease that habitual drunkenness was a disease. But he wasn't saying that medicine is the only way. He wasn't saying that science is going to save us. He wasn't saying that someday we'll have a pill and then that'll be the, the cure. He was really interested in social problems, You know what we would today call health equity. He was really interested in even what you would call people's moral development, not in like a moralistic way, but in, in the sense of what is someone's meaning and value and purpose in their life and does their community and does their nation and does their society give them the opportunity for meaningful work and meaningful community engagement? And you recognize that all those things were part of an addiction identity, even though he didn't use those words. But in, in more recent iterations, I think people use the word disease, addiction as a disease, in a much harder way to imply those overly reductionistic ideas that medicine is the only way out. And if we only did the right thing, medically or scientifically, we'd all be fine. And I think that's, that's dangerous. You know, in reading through this book and looking forward to this interview, I've hesitated to apply my own personal experience. But I'll just ask this question. I often don't feel that I see my own recovery story in too many narratives about people recovering from an addiction. I was quite a significant drinker right up until September of 2018 when I decided I would take a break and noticed that the very physical yearning in my body for a drink was so strong that it dawned on me that I had a much bigger problem than I thought. And then I began to experience the extremely significant benefits in terms of my perception in terms of the way that it felt to look into my kids' eyes, that it was a richer experience when I did so, and that I was able to think more clearly and be more successful, that it was all of the benefits of not drinking that allowed me to continue right up until this point where now I've not had a drink for more than three years. And that has nothing to do with joining any group or entering a program, and I hesitate to even share it out of concern that it might harm the pathway of someone else who's trying to find their way out of an addiction. I suppose that if I try to turn this into a question, Carl, the question would be, to what degree in your experience are people like me recovering, at least up until this point, has their experience been one that where they're able to sort of take care of it themselves somehow, miraculously? Yeah, it's a very common experience, Andrew, what you're describing. And I want to say thank you for sharing that because it, I know it's hard to share about whatever you want to call I don't even know if you identify as a person in recovery per se. That's sort of a freighted term. But to, to share about having resolved the substance issue. But what we know from the research, and some of this research was only done very recently, I'm talking like last five years, that there are many, many different paths to recovery. And 
this was one of the things that I was shocked by. My parents both had severe alcohol problems. They both went to the best treatment they could go to. My mother was a university professor. I went to med school at Columbia. I went to rehab. You know, like I went, I I got every possible opportunity in, you know, 1980s to 2010s to learn about addiction. And it was a, still a shock to me to learn that there were different pathways to recovery, that there is a different range of ways people move on beyond severe substance problems. You know, just by the stats, there's something like 10% of the United States population reports having resolved a problem with substances. And about half of them say, I'm in recovery. So even within that number, there's remarkable, remarkable diversity. I know what you mean about like the, the danger of misleading people. At least that's what I hear and what you're saying, Andrew, is that you know you, you have like a worry about if I say the wrong thing, maybe somebody will take it the wrong way or they'll use it as fuel for their denial. Or... Yeah. Is, is my experience relevant to someone else who's confronting what I have confronted and am confronting? Yeah. I think it's relevant for someone. And I think we need to tell more stories about alcohol problems, problems with other drugs, because there's so much variety. And you know, we talk about stigma all the time. This is a really hot topic in mental health and especially in addiction. And there's massive stigma. There's massive stigma against people who use drugs, massive stigma against people in recovery. There's structural stigma at the level of like the way our healthcare system is built to exclude people with mental health and especially substance use problems. Um, but there's also stigma within the recovery community from some people. There's stigma against other varieties of recovery. People look down on other forms of wellness or working toward flourishing that they think maybe is threatening toward their own recovery. They think like, oh, this is not the right way to do it or um, I don't know. I think that can come from a lot of places. Sometimes it's an insecurity and sometimes people, you know, they really need to cling tightly to what they find. But I, I think one of the next stages in recovery advocacy, and this is not just my own idea. I get it from talking to advocates in this space. What I'm thinking of in particular is Ryan Hampton, who talk about an urgent, urgent need for recovery choice. It's not just about getting into recovery. It's about having the opportunity to see all these different varieties. And that's also something I came across over and over again in the book. There are many different ways. There are people who find recovery through some sort of you know, meaningful professional pursuit or through a religious or spiritual or faith-based investigation. Usually people are pulling from multiple traditions all over the place. So in the end, nobody is really doing the same thing. And I think we can really respect that it's a good path out and it's a good path to connection and you know mutual respect and recognition. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Carl Eric Fisher. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery 
starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back. Carl, I wanted to go in the direction of pop culture. In the cancer world, there's nothing good about it, but oftentimes humor is a vehicle that kind of gets us through it. I had started the nonprofit, uh, God, in 2007 called Stupid Cancer, and it was the first time that there was this national poker stick at cancer narrative that was okay to joke about it. It was okay to poke a stick at it, and a lot of the cues we took were from some of the braver film and television writers and producers that started to put cancer or cancer narratives into cartoons like Seth MacFarlane. There was a South Park episode where weed got legal in South Park, but it was medicinal. You could only get it if you had cancer. So all the men of the town gave themselves testicular cancer just to get weed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I look at the Dr. Drews and, and the interventions. Those are very serious. But are you able to point to anything in the sort of the dark comedy, dark humor space in pop culture that have brought this narrative more to light? Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, first off, you know, people in recovery from addiction, some of the funniest people around, I think, you know, go to any sort of like mutual help 12 step group meeting. You'll hear a lot of laughter. And some of that is just like tapping into the dark comedy of being a human being and just how like silly we can be sometimes. But that's true throughout history. I think Thomas De Quincey, who, you know, in some ways wrote the first addiction memoir, is a really funny guy. <laughs> He's a really hilarious dude. You know, he was writing around like 1820s in very lofty romantic language, you know, putting himself down and kind of joking about how blinded he was to the pains of opium and how he was so arrogant and all of his blind spots. And th there's something funny about that. There's something funny about how humans can be so arrogant and kind of blinkered and blinded to our own biases. I don't know. I think, you know, people who really are in touch with that side of themselves. It's a route to health and it also is just, it's, it's hilarious. So I think that another area that is absolutely worth thinking about here is uh, the role of racism in feeding the war on drugs and derailing comprehensive solutions to drug epidemics. You talk about this extensively in your book. What do you think the role of racism is within society's approach to addiction. Racism is so interwoven with the history of drugs and the history of addiction that it's just impossible to separate them two. And they're there from the very, very beginning. Going back to the very first drug 
epidemic in a way in 1492 when Columbus was traveling throughout Cuba and the other Caribbean islands, he encountered tobacco and then brought that back to Europe. And it was a massive, massive craze. And, you know, at first it was this aristocratic, very high-minded medicinal plant. And then very quickly became a problem because people perceived these issues with self-control and even back then a little bit of the health risks, not entirely, but they started to see the problems and so quickly became racialized so quickly became a problem of the barbarous, wild, godless Indians. And it was cast in those terms. So whether it's an in-drug or an out-drug or a good drug or a bad drug, that's commonly, if not always, kind of woven through with racial tensions. And then in the other direction, addiction is used as a weapon in racism and oppression. People use the idea of addiction and over sell or overemphasize the potential dangers of addiction as a sort of pretext. And the classic example, which, you know, we could talk about for ages is the war on drugs, which you could date to the 1970s, or you could put it back to the 1920s, but just the use of the idea of like some sort of deadly, dangerous, racially charged drug as a justification for prohibitionist crackdowns. Yeah. And that even connects to the marijuana ban in the 1930s. Schedule one was basically a straw man racist bait in this country by idiot white senators who just wanted to scapegoat people. You know, this is not news. This has been like this for many, many years. I remember learning about the, you know, the opium scares were also derivative of blaming communities of color just to scare people into these tactics. Is there any reason to be legitimately optimistic that the next 10 years we've gotten aware enough and evolved enough as a society to truly address these issues? Yes, absolutely. My gut response is there's a lot of reason for hope, even amid incalculable suffering. The stats just came out that the annual overdose death rate is over 100,000. I actually wrote an academic paper in 2019 where I said something like, oh, it's a new record of 72,000. And now it's 2021, it's 100,000 just from overdose deaths. So that's an incalculable tragedy. And a lot of those deaths are preventable. But I think in the face of that tragedy, people are coming to realize the inadequacy of our current paradigm, that just prohibition by itself has definitely failed. And that also we need something more than medicine, that there's something about drug problems and there's something about addiction problems that points toward what we need in society, what we need to do to reform our healthcare system overall and what we need to do to take care of people's basic human needs. So I think, you know, there's cause for hope for a change in consciousness around not just stopping the bad drugs, but recovery as a sort of ongoing process of wellness and taking care of people in a more integrated and holistic way. I mean, this goes back to the allegory we always use that people don't believe the sky is falling on them until it's crushed them already. But denial is its own addiction. And being unaware of risk, being unaware of your behavior, can you educate me and some of our listeners around the role of denial, the human condition and substance abuse? Yeah, definitely. As far as I'm able, because as I describe a little in the book, denial is a complex topic that's actually been a bit excluded from some of the academic studies of addiction. It's the baby that was thrown out with the bathwater 
around like the 1970s, people got really into these like behaviorist ideas about drugs as like mechanical agents that kind of took people over and hijacked them. And we're still kind of recovering from that notion. But there are a lot of people in denial. There are a lot of people who have difficulty recognizing the problems that substances are causing them. Out of the millions and millions of people who have a problem with substance use disorder, the way that we call it in official psychiatry, something like only 5% think they need help. And these are people who meet criteria for serious problems. That's a really complex issue, but I can tell you about one of them, which is one that came up really strongly in me, which was a need to hide and deceive others because of shame. When I was having problems, I was in psychiatric residency. It was right out of medical school. And I thought wrongly, because all the people around me were trying to help me, but I thought that there was something unsafe about being vulnerable and about asking for help. I thought it meant something dangerous about me. It meant that I wasn't good or that I wasn't like the golden boy that I thought I was. That lying to myself, I think, as best as I can reflect on it, was a way of lying to other people. It was a misguided attempt to protect myself. And I don't think it's true for everybody. I don't think every single person who experiences the phenomenon of denial has that same thing going on. But usually we make it very difficult for people to come forward with these types of often shameful experiences, like substance problems. They are very moralized and they are treated very harshly in a lot of ways. So that's part of that change in consciousness that needs to happen is to, is to support it as a, a normal part of human life that is much, much, much more common than we recognize. In this book, you're really making an argument that we understand addiction to be something that's much more complex and varied from person to person than anyone seems to acknowledge currently. There's a concept that beats at the heart of your approach to making that argument correct my pronunciation, is it acrasia? It's this gray area between free will. Yeah, I've heard philosophy professors pronounce it all different ways, so I think you're fine. But I, I like to say acrasia. Acrasia. I don't know Greek that well, so I don't... Acrasia. It's fun to say it that way, so I'll say it that way. Uh, acrasia, the gray area between free will and compulsion, which seems to exist a bit outside of the realm of denial. In fact, it involves a form of awareness where you actually watch yourself doing something that is not good for you. So what role does that play in what we might argue is the more nuanced understanding of addiction that I think you're arguing for in this book? Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. And thank you for bringing that to light because it is really important to me. A big barrier to me was I thought that addiction was something over there. I thought that my parents had an addiction problem and I just had a self-control or a maturity problem or something else. And I think that sort of us-them dichotomy is really dangerous. And it gets reinforced by some of these ideas, again, about like addiction as a brain disease or as addiction as something really severe. I think addiction is fundamentally universal. It's there in all of us. It's just in the extreme forms of addiction that really cause problems in people's lives or require some sort of medical help or intervention, that's where we really see it on display. In other words, like what I learned in med school was a sort of dichotomy between choice and compulsion. So-called so normal people could walk around exercising free choice, but then some kind of switch got flipped. And then at some point, a drug user got hijacked into compulsion. And um, that's not my experience. You know, as I increasingly work with patients, that's not their experience as far as I can tell. 
that there's this vast, vast gray area. Everybody struggles with self-control problems. People will struggle with self-control around technology, social media, work, gambling, sex, status, money, acclaim. And you know, some of those things were also my problem and they weren't fully to the level of an addiction per se, but I think it was part and parcel of the same fundamental issue of that eternal mystery. That's a problem that Aristotle himself recognized. You know, incidentally, Aristotle was the tutor to Alexander the Great, who then wound up dying of a uh, addiction problem, essentially drank himself to death. And uh, you have to wonder if it was informed. I mean, certainly we can say that they were seeing problems like that back in ancient Greece, hundreds of years BC. Well, thanks, uh, Aristotle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Carl Eric Fisher, we want to have you back. This is very important. This is the first time on Out of Patience we've covered this issue. It's Board of the Human Condition. And the new book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction, is on sale today wherever books are sold. Carl Eric Fisher is an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University and host of the Flourishing After Addiction podcast, which we encourage all our listeners to follow today. Links in the episode description. Carl, thank you so much. Thanks so much, you guys. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Carl. That's all for now. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.